Hello and welcome to the Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we look at the booming Brazilian pet shop industry, a new Taiwanese business publication, and we explore the Kiev Metro. Salotti Varota often tops lists of the world's most beautiful metro stations. It's arguably Kiev's most impressive feat of art and architecture. The station's architecture has a temple-like feel to it, with marble pillars, arched ceilings and huge bronze chandeliers lit with mock candles. Plus, the power of a good joke. Where can you tell a joke these days? What's happened is that we've all become a bit nervous about telling jokes because we think we're going to offend somebody and lose our jobs. What's strange is that while people will, will literally not tell you a knock-knock joke, what they will do is they will quote verbatim the most foul-mouthed tirade from, say, Ricky Gervais, and somehow that's fine because they're quoting somebody else. All that and much, much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with Monaco on Design. This week's show, Nolan Giles spoke to the Sydney-based writer and fashion photographer Giuseppe Santamaria. We joined them in conversation to discuss Santa Maria's most recent book, Man in this Town, a decade of man's street style, which documents sartorialists across the globe. I think every photographer wants to see their work in print. So, and you know, me working in magazines, I kind of loved designing them. So I used Tumblr as the cheapest platform to kind of be able to produce something that looked kind of magazine-like, you know, it wasn't looking like a blog or anything like that. I tried to kind of put my little stamp on that. But then I was probably... Yeah, it was three years into it when I actually got my first book deal with it. And from there, I kind of ended up going on a big world trip and gathering photos from different towns that I kind of thought, you know, would be a great place to actually photograph men with distinctive styles. This was in the last 10 years. And so much has changed online for inspiration when it comes to menswear and fashion in general. There wasn't necessarily a distinct look in each city anymore. You know, everything has become the same looking, but different cities and different countries end up doing it their own way. And there are certain details that make it interesting. And that's what I was kind of documenting these last 10 years. The idea of doing kind of a 10-year retrospect, basically, of what men's style was like for the last decade. And, you know, there were these distinctive trends from a sartorial kind of feel to streetwear and the luxury of streetwear and everything in between. So it's kind of showing how menswear kind of evolved into what it is right now, where I think men are just having fun with fashion again, probably in comparison to how it was in the 70s, you know, not kind of having gender stereotypes dictate what they wear. What's happening at the moment? Because it does feel like there is this amazing eccentricity going on in the way that men dress. Where is that coming from and, and how have you kind of seen it evolve? Well, I think the biggest evolution that I've seen it in is my own hometown here in Sydney. When I started Sydney, it's a beach city. So like thongs, t-shirt and shorts were kind of like the go-to because it's warm and it's kind of a beach culture here. So to see that from 10 years ago, grow into what I'm seeing now. And especially, I mean, I've been in Sydney for the last two years now because of the pandemic and been focusing my uh, photography on obviously my surroundings. And you definitely see kind of the change where I could go down walking in the CBD and kind of capture at least 20 to 30 people in a day that have this 
fun style. That's there's lots of color. There's lots of different materials. There's lots of flamboyancy. There's just a variety. And it's not just one note, you know, it's guys are using fashion to express themselves in more ways than they ever have. Where before it was, you know, the Australian culture of just being a beach bum and kind of going with that style. And then if you're going to dress up, it's just those cliche kind of ways of wearing a suit that's probably paired with a wacky bow tie and just kind of doing things that, you know, are a bit cliche where I think Sydney guys, Australian guys are finding their own way, which is exciting to photograph. And why do you think that is? And also, I'm guessing if, you know, there's a an amazing moment for, for men's style in, in Sydney and Australia, there must be kind of great things happening in the world of fashion design over there and, and retail. Yeah, well, I think it's just mainly because of the exposure of the internet. What you saw with fashion 20 years ago here was only kind of through magazines and what you kind of were going to feed kind of the audience from a fashion point of view, where now kind of guys were able to see what was going on around the world in various genres that they might be interested in. So it's no longer just kind of, oh, this is the way it's meant to be because this is what fashion is. There's so many subcultures that you can look into and research and follow online that the world is a big place and you have so much inspiration to kind of grab from now. And I think that's happened around the world, not just here in Australia. You're seeing that, oh, there isn't just one way to be a man or how to dress like a man. It's, um, there's a lot more to it. And just finally, what do you think has been the, uh, the recipe for your longevity in, in doing this? Because we have kind of seen a, a bit of a rise and fall maybe in, in street style photography. And then, you know, we've seen the rise of Instagram maybe taking over that place of Tumblr. There's been a lot of change and disruption in the way that men's style has been documented. But you've obviously always been there and you've, you're releasing this book to kind of celebrate it. What are the keys to success for you? Well, I think it's just to, to stick through it. You know, so many people want that instant gratification sometimes, especially now in kind of the age that we're living in. I've always looked up to Bill Cunningham and I love the way that he managed kind of his career and kind of was in it for the long run and just he, he kept it simple. I like to think that I keep it simple in the way that, you know, if I could just go out, have my camera and travel where and when I can to photograph men and their style, you know, I'd be happy. And then if I could do these other little projects like creating magazines or publishing books and doing podcasts, they're the fun things that can change it up all the time. But the basis of it, it's always going to be men's style, showcasing it, how it evolves over the years. And hopefully, yeah, I can keep doing it for the next 20, 30 years. Who knows? That was Giuseppe Santamaria speaking to Nolan Giles. And now for something close to my heart, pet shops. Having recently been to my hometown, Sao Paulo, I've reported on this week's briefing on the booming pet shop industry in Brazil. So, Fernando, you were in Brazil recently. Tell us more about what's happening over there with the pet shops well, and animals. It is crazy, Marcos. I think if you've never been to Brazil, you'll be surprised of how many pet shops there are. And it is an industry that keeps on growing. We are already the second biggest market, as you said, just behind the United States. But think about it. Brazil, you know, first of all, our population, uh, you know, is lower than the U.S. And we're not as rich as a country as well. But, you know, look at China, look 
at India, look at here in Europe as well. It's such a strong market and people love to pamper their pets. In fact, I was looking at the biggest chain of pet shops in the country. It's called Pets with a Z, I have to say. Uh, they have 168 stores. They're planning to open 50 in mm. 2022, Marcos. And, the, and their shops, I have to say, they're like shopping centers. They're not just your tiny little cozy shop. They're huge. You can buy literally everything you want uh, for your dog from, from an acupuncture sex session uh, to some nice clothes as well. Well, I, I, I've been looking at uh, your list of the pets you've had in your life. You've had a couple of dogs. One of them was called Master Mister. The other one was called <laughs> Katharina. You also had a rabbit called Veridiana and a chinchilla called Blue. We may have to talk about Brazilian naming conventions. <laughs> yeah. plus, but, but all but, my choices, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but before before that, tell us about how much people are spending money on their pets. Do, well, do, do people ever consider saving money and maybe buying something for themselves rather than the pets? And that's what I find so interesting, Marcus. Brazil is going a little bit, uh, we're in the middle of an economic crisis. And the prices for pet food, they've increased 24% last year. Even with, the, even with the case that I just told you, people are still spending money on their pets. And I have to say, if you ask me, is it something of a social class or of a state? No, I think this is throughout the country. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're poor, middle class, if you're rich, if you're from Sao Paulo or you're from the Amazon region. It doesn't matter. People are spending money uh, with that. And I am surprised indeed because people are making quite a lot of savings, I have to say. It's been a difficult, difficult, difficult few years in Brazil. But that area, the pet shops, they are as stable as ever, growing in fact. Tell us more about luxury things you can buy for your pets. What do you come across in Brazilian pet shops then if they are particularly well stocked? It's funny that I mention acupuncture as well. It's not a new thing, acupuncture for dogs. I mean, it's there. But in Brazil, I mean, I was in the middle of certain conversations. It comes so frequently. People say, oh, they, my dog acupuncturist. But they said as if it's just going to the bakery to buy bread. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that sense, I was very much surprised. I, I personally think they pamper a bit too much, perhaps. Uh, I do have a, a dog, Julie, a beautiful German Shepherd. I mean, she doesn't need to dress in, you know, mm. in, a, in lovely clothing. I did buy some premium treats for her as well. Right. Again, the word premium is there. I'm a Brazilian. I can't mm. deny I am attracted to those kind of... If you say it's premium for my dog, probably I'll go and buy it if I have the money. I remember there was there was one pub in London that also launched something for, for dogs. And one of the things they offered was Posecco, some kind of a sparkling meat liquid. I wonder if you can get anything like that from Brazil. Yes, you can. And, and, and Marcus, even I mentioned pet shops, of course, but if you go to a normal supermarket, mm-hmm. there will be a pet session there. And it's much larger than what I see here in the United Kingdom, for example. You mentioned Prosecco, yes. And, and there are a lot of, uh, how do you say, the vitamin things you, you, you have, the smoothies, yes, the smoothies. smoothies. Which, which I hate, but there are a lot of smoothies, smoothies for dogs. For as dogs. Well. Yes, yes, it, it, it's there. It's there. Again, Julie's not having those. She's having lovely treats and there are special uh, kind of uh, pet pet food for specific types of dogs as well. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's common, but you know, there's one for German Shepherd, uh, which I think that's the one she she's eating. I have to ask one more question because I've been hearing these amazing insights of the Brazilian culture from you, Fernando. So <laughs> we've talked about this a few times on the radio, that bakeries are a flirting ground for young Brazilians. I wonder if pet shops serve any function 
such as that. Don't quote me on that, but I believe we do have love hotels for dogs as well. So, I mean, we do have love hotels for people, but I think we have one for dogs as well. I mean, in case your dog wants to find a nice partner. How do they work? I mean, I do have to do any, a full-on investigation on that for you, Marcus, because I haven't been inside one. Is it a good idea? Good for them, good for the owners. It's, it, it's a good investment. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We head to the U.S. now, where the Supreme Court has rejected a request by former President Donald Trump to block the release of White House records to the Congressional Committee in charge of investigating the January the 6th Capitol riots. Monaco Tom Edwards was joined by Julian Norman, who is the co-director of University College London Center on U.S. Politics, and also by Monaco's news editor, Chris Chamak. Julie, let me actually start with you. Just bring us back up to speed here. What happened exactly? What are the documents in question uh, that uh, this ruling was concerned with? Sure. So the congressional panel in the House that's investigating the incidents of January 6th has been trying to get access to some of Trump's documents for months. This is to investigate the lead up to the riot on January 6th, as well as how the riot played out and also Trump's lack of actions that day. Trump has been claiming executive privilege, uh, which is a tradition in the United States that means that the president's communications uh, cannot you know, are not usually up for for um, for public uh, review in this way. Um, this has gone through several other lower courts and came to the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court ruled yesterday that indeed in this situation, uh, these documents were so important that they overrode the usual executive privilege and could, in fact, be turned over to the committee. Yeah, hugely significant. And Chris, let me bring you in, I guess, on that sort of point. Why why is this so uh, critical? Uh, more than 700 documents we understand made available. Do we have any sense of what the investigators are actually hoping to find within the, this, this cache of documents? Well, maybe it makes sense to back up a little bit on that to say what this committee is trying to investigate. There's a number of tracts to it, but really the, the cores are... One is looking at the day itself, right, January 6th, the insurrection, the security lapses, how this could have happened, how people got into the Capitol, and sort of the very specifics of that day and who was involved sort of on the day, those who are many who have been charged and are, uh, you know, even sent to prison for their role in it. The second part of this investigation, though, is the politics, if you will. Who encouraged the riot? Who expected it to actually infiltrate the Capitol? Was there a plan to infiltrate the Capitol? Who knew about that, if so? And related to that, you know, the whole question about the election. Who was attempting to actively subvert the election result? Who was attempting attempting to prevent Joe Biden from taking office with claims of election fraud, as we know Donald Trump has made consistently and consistently continues to make? And that's really where these 700 documents are so crucial, if you will, on that second point. What did Donald Trump know? What was going on in the White House? in the run-up to and on the day, uh, as Julie said there, exactly what 
was his role was he was he supporting this was he was he encouraging even though he publicly eventually told those supporters to go home was he rejecting that in the run up there was a number there were hours there where he was not telling his supporters to go home um not commenting on the riot in that sense quite as openly so what was happening behind the scenes in the white house and yes even further you know this is what we don't know was there was he aware of what might be happening ahead of january 6th as well these are all the sort of open questions about who knew what exactly and how much of a role did they have in it well julian Norman, let me ask you specifically then about that point as it relates to donald trump what what kind of a blow is this to his well this this campaign to keep these documents um out of the the spotlight and then more broadly to his you know, wider political ambitions. I guess we can't know until we see or learn more about the content of the document specifically on that latter point. But it, it must be it's, it's certainly a blow, even in terms of his 24 ambitions, right? Well, it certainly may be. And again, this was the last attempt to block these documents from being released. I think Trump was counting on some of the justices he had appointed to the Supreme Court to maybe have his back on this. And in this case, we saw those justices, um, you know, really uh, abiding by their own virtues and integrity of office and and letting these these documents go forward. So he's at the end of the road with the documents. What this means for him moving forward, though, is still quite up in the air. It's important to note that the House committee is not um, a criminal prosecution kind of committee. They're investigating the incidents of that day and what led up to it. But what they can do is make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice if there is indications of wrongdoing. So the big question in Washington around a lot of the Trump documents is will there be enough here to encourage a criminal referral to justice regarding Donald Trump himself? If that is the case and justice decides to pursue it, that's really the only path by which Trump could, uh, you know, legally um, have charges against him that would affect him running in 2024. Obviously, there could be political repercussions that could also uh, affect his uh, his his prospects for 2024. But the way that we have seen uh, his uh, his base and his supporters reacting to the events of January 6th and reacting to the committee, my sense is that the political repercussions itself would not be enough to stop him. It would only be if it went to legal action, which is, again, quite further down the road from where we are now. Maybe just to jump in on that point, Julie, I think one of the things, though, that that is perhaps interesting for for me to say is that it feels like Republicans in the U.S. have walked a a very fine line, if you will, uh, of sort of acknowledging that January 6th was abhorrent, was something that should not have happened, but at the same time saying that we should not overly focus on it, that it was a dark day in politics, but it was not the work of shady political forces, whether in the White House or sort of, you know, higher ups, if you will. It was not encouraged by politicians and was essentially just a protest gone wrong, if you will. So I guess that's where I wonder if... uh, if this comes out that Donald Trump was more intricately involved in some way or other members of the administration were intricately involved, knew what was happening and even encouraging it, that could be quite politically damaging, even if there isn't a legal referral. Well, yeah, and this is... Something that I find interesting, which is the degree to which this is, uh, you know, I mean, look, everything in this space is political. But Julie, let me ask you, is there a reassurance, maybe because of the ruling of the court in this instance, that this is a satisfactorily 
neutral and objective uh, investigation that continues and that actually maybe even with the polarised US political spectrum, we can avoid kicking this around as a political football and just be quite rigorous and... You know, this investigation into the you know upholding of democratic values offers a bit of a, I don't know, an opportunity maybe for uh, the capital and for the whole of the system to, to to sort of reassert the values at it at its core. Is it a bit early to say something positive like that? Um, I think it might be a bit early. At the same time, it is important that the judiciary has stayed uh, independent and has maintained their integrity through this. And that is you know, key for U.S. democracy right now and other institutions. Uh, there's a bit more worry around them. Um, but I think what we're looking at now, I mean, again, from much of Trump's base point of view, the committee is and has been uh, – you know, a, uh, a very politicized operation from their point of view. That's not the way uh, most moderates see it, uh, most traditional Republicans see it, but most of Trump's base see it that way as kind of a gotcha operation. And that's the way that Trump has been framing it. So that has been part of his uh, rhetoric in trying to, to not release these documents. And so I do think that image is going to persist, even though the committee itself has been uh, you know, operating uh, in a in a very respectable uh, kind of kind of format. But as to Chris's point, I mean, a lot will just obviously depend on what actually comes out of these documents. There were over 750 pages released, and they range from everything from uh, Trump's daily diary to uh, draft texts of speeches that he was planning for January 6th to calls with election officials. So there's a lot for the committee to go through, and. You know, I think the response and uh, the response from both the right and the left will just really depend on the content that's uh, that's released in these documents. Well, yeah, given that context, then, Chris, what's the next key thing to, to look out for? Do we just have to await pronouncements exactly as Julie's described then once we have a more forensic scrutiny of what is contained on these pages? Is there another date in diaries? What do you think is the next key indicator as to how things are going to shape up? Well, in short, yes, I think we just have to wait for the committee to now do its work. This is, uh, as Julie said there, a, a number of documents uh, that, that they have to look at, hundreds of documents. There's also still a question of who else will appear uh, before the panel. Uh, there have been various senior members, uh, such as Mark Meadows, former chief of staff, and also Steve Bannon, who are being held in contempt of Congress, potentially, because they're not appearing before the panel. So the panel still has to do a lot of work on that regard. The one thing I'd just say to end is what's been so striking about this, and it'll be interesting if the committee can make any inroads on this, is the fact that it's worth noting that both sides in this, rather uh, surprisingly, if you will, see democracy at stake, right? Mm. Two-thirds of Republicans also who believe that the election in 2020 was a fraud believe that democracy is at stake as a result. So both sides are, if you will, passionate about democracy in this, even if half the side, you know, d Democrats and most moderates, as Julie said, believe that this was something uh, that was an attempt to subvert the election. And the other side believes there was, you know, believes Trump's claims, unfounded claims of election fraud. It will be interesting for me to see whether the committee can make any inroads on that, pushing back against those claims by perhaps exposing certain comments that Donald Trump made to show that he was actually intentionally trying to subvert a process and just how unfounded those claims were. And for this week's tall stories, Hester Underhill marvels at the stunning architecture that the Ukrainian capital keeps buried in its underground metro stations. 
Kiev's Astanalna metro station is the deepest in the world. Each day, it's creaking Soviet-era escalators churn thousands of passengers down into the bowels of the city. It's a ride that stretches over 100 meters below ground, and it takes a full five minutes to travel from top to bottom. Passengers then file onto the platforms before climbing aboard dimly lit carriages lined with scuffed burgundy-colored vinyl bonquettes that hurtle noisily through the city. Remarkably little has changed since Kiev's subway network was constructed, and it remains a unique time capsule that can be accessed for a ticket that costs just eight hryvnia, which is about 20 cents. The city's metro was completed when Ukraine was under Soviet rule, with many stations built extra deep in order to double as bomb shelters during the Cold War. The first of Kiev's three metro lines opened in 1960, and the network today stretches for a combined length of 70 kilometers beneath the city. Not only does it remain a practical bit of infrastructure that transports some 1.5 million passengers per day, at least half of the city's population, but it's arguably Kiev's most impressive feat of art and architecture. Each station has its own particular theme and is elaborately decorated accordingly. The design of Shuliavska station, for example, which was constructed in 1963, is dedicated to power plant workers and boasts a vast mosaic of a man in overalls raising a glowing atom above his head like a beacon. The walls of University at station are lined with an array of marble busts of famous Ukrainians, while Olympiska station's design is inspired by the 1980 Moscow Olympics, with a mosaic of the game's emblem and large metal chandeliers modelled after bicycle wheels. It's Zolotti Varota, however, that often tops lists of the world's most beautiful metro stations. The design of father-son duo Boris and Vadim Zehorin. The station's architecture has a temple-like feel to it, with marble pillars, arched ceilings and huge bronze chandeliers lit with mock candles. It's decked out with over 80 different mosaics, depicting the history of the Kievian Rus, a powerful empire during the Middle Ages that centred in Kiev, as well as a large panel depicting the city's patron saint, Michael the Archangel. Today, however, some of Kiev Metro's ornamental features are under threat, in 2015, Ukraine passed a decommunization law that was aimed at ridding the country of remnants of its Soviet past. For the metro, which was awash with communist symbols, this involved the removal of various mosaics, statues and slogans that were part of the station's design. These new laws have been criticized by many as an attempt to rewrite history, but so far they haven't been so thoroughly enforced as to fully clear the entire metro network of its Soviet-era decorations. Passengers can still spot medallions depicting historic communist victories and the odd hammer and sickle hidden within a mural or mosaic. Thank you very much, Hester. And I must agree, the metro in Kiev is beautiful. I was there once covering a story from Monaco and I was marveled by that as well. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We hear now from Monaco's Thomas Lewis on Quebec's proposed tax for the unvaccinated. Canada's vaccination rate against COVID-19 is among one of the highest in the world. 
That means that there's been little public sympathy, broadly speaking, for the minority of people in Canada who oppose being compelled to get vaccinated. That pro-vaccine sentiment is already reflected in parts of federal law here. Federal employees must show proof of vaccination, for example, before they take up a government job. And it's illegal for an unvaccinated person to board a plane or a train in Canada, a policy that was announced by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last October, following his party's victory in last summer's general election. If you've done the right thing and gotten vaccinated, you deserve the freedom to be safe from COVID-19, to have your kids safe from COVID, to get back to the things you love. And if you haven't gotten your shots yet but want to travel this winter, let's be clear. There will only be a few extremely narrow exceptions, like a valid medical condition. For the vast, vast majority of people, the rules are very simple. To travel, you've got to be vaccinated. But the pressure on many of Canada's health networks is pronounced at the moment, as the Omicron variant of the virus, the spread of which, according to some measures, appears to be slowing slightly in parts of Europe, for example, is still in many places here on the rise, as it is south of the border in the United States. And that's the context in which the Premier of Quebec, François Legault, made the announcement last week that proposed taxing those who refuse a COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccine is the key to fight the virus. This is why we're looking uh, for a an health contribution for adults who refuse to be vaccinated for non-medical reasons. Those who refuse to receive their first dose in the coming weeks will have to pay a new health contribution. I know the situation is tough, but we can get through this together. The proposal, and it is still just a proposal at the moment, has divided opinion. There are many downsides. First, it will polarise people. It will increase conflict uh, in the society. Uh, between uh, people that are vaccinated and those that are not vaccinated. And th this may be an issue. And also penalize some marginalized people. We know, for example, in Europe, that having a precarious financial situation is one of the main predictors of vaccine hesitancy. Uh, so, you know, it, it will be, if, if this is implemented, it will be a regressive tax in the sense that, on average, there will be poor people may pay a bigger burden than richer people uh, with this tax. And while other premiers have said that they won't consider a similar policy in their own corners of the country, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been cautious to judge the suggestion either way. While Justin Trudeau wants more information about Quebec's plan to tax the unvaxxed, he's also not denouncing it. Various orders of government are right to look at different ways of encouraging and incentivizing people to get vaccinated. The most revealing response so far, however, might well be from the public itself. The day after the policy was proposed, more than 7,000 people in Quebec were reported to have signed up for their first dose of the vaccine in a single day. Whether or not this eye-catching, perhaps controversial policy ever makes it into law, there appears to be a constitutional and legal mountain to climb if that's to happen. The mere suggestion of a financial penalty for those hesitant to get vaccinated appears to have spurred some in Quebec to roll up their sleeves. For Monocle in Toronto, I'm Thomas Lewis.
A highlight from my show now, The Stack. It was a pleasure speaking to former Monaco staff Kurt Lin on his exciting new title on business and finance. It's based in Taiwan and called 1611. Kurt tells me more. 1611 is the name of this new business and finance magazine to be out in January in, based in Taiwan. Currently, I'm based in Taipei. So the, the magazine will be out on the major bookshop, bookshelf, such as Aslead and maybe Jutaya and some other major bookstores. Uh, why am I doing this uh, here? First of all, Taiwan is an amazing place. It's probably one of the most liberal places uh, for any editorial or publishing project. And second of all, it has uh, there are so many talents in the editorial scene, uh, from illustrator to photographer to writers to editors. There's so many talents uh, here. Like since I was, I, I was reporting constantly in Taiwan. I met so many editorial like talents in 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 this place, and uh, so I, I I just think it might as well that I should I should do something related to um to editorial project uh, if I had the opportunity. And this magazine, uh, why now uh, doing a business and finance magazine, which is usually has a higher entry level because of the expertise and professional knowledge. And I see there's a gap of having kind of high quality journalism and reporting style for this generation uh, readers. When people in like in Taiwan, for example, or in Chinese reading market in general, if they want to learn about uh, business or finance, they have to read some very old and like aged and kind of old traditional like legacy media. So they, they of course, they would read Bloomberg. They would read uh, Financial Times. They would read Economist. They would read uh, Monaco. They would read uh, a lot uh, or, or the local media brands to learn there to, to, to kind of hone their craft of business and how to invest. But when everyone start reading these legacy traditional media brands, there is a gap of understanding. Like for example, there's so, just so many jargons and there's so many, uh, it's a huge and high wall of, of a professionalism. So if you're uh, new to this industry or this kind of field of knowledge, it is not an easy read for, for anyone, like apart from Monaco, for example. So is there an opportunity for me to kind of share some kind of professional knowledge, such an investing or investment in general to a more general public? I think there's a big opportunity. That's why this is time to do it. And, and also uh, over the past, like in the past two years, there's uh, the, probably the highest number of new stock investors in Taiwan and not probably not just in Taiwan when you during COVID time you constantly read a lot of news about the retail investor joining like in the US stock market as well uh, so you know you, you read some very interesting news such as like Reddit and some GameStop just uh, like the, the hedge fund managers being beaten up by by a bunch of online retail investors this kind of funny story that shows the demand of new age Kind of financial knowledge and then how can we do a print media with high quality of photography high quality illustration high quality of writing but kind of tailor-made for this generation of reader i think uh, that's the opportunity here and that's why i started doing this and tell us why uh, 1611 it's, a, it's an interesting title for for the magazine like 1611 was the year that the uh, first stock exchange 
in our human history was ever open to the public in Amsterdam, in Netherlands. That's the year, like the first, the first dog issued to the public was uh, 1602 in, in, uh, in also in, in Netherlands. And uh, it was the East India Company, a bunch of adventurers uh, or entrepreneurs, they wanted to do business. They wanted to, to take the goods or take the, take the ship to sail to the Asia and explore and get a lot of treasures such as porcelain, tea, uh, spices, uh, all, all these good things. They wanted to sail and take the risks to the uncharted territory to explore to the world and bring it back to their own country. That's the dreams, you know? I, we really admire this kind of spirit of entrepreneurship. And uh, so it was the time that's kind of defining the modern capitalism and entrepreneurship. That's the birthplace and that's the time when like global entrepreneurs were born. And uh, so also like that was the first, first time uh, stock kind of issued to the general public. And in 1611 stock market or exchange square place was first time open to the public because before that it was only privately traded. So there's only some kind of, some kind of maybe aristocracy uh, kind of richer people uh, to kind of trade their stocks of uh, East India Company privately, but not in the open square. And 1611 was the year where people can just go there and buy the stocks at the price that they want. I think it's super beautiful. And for example, I think that was one of the biggest uh, financial technology or financial innovation. Like right now, we're we all talking about, oh, can we make a nicer app with a better user interface or a faster click, or it's all like on the screen. But deep down, what I, or what the team appreciate more is the human activity of doing business. A bunch of capitalists, they have their money to support the dreamers. And a bunch of dreamers, they have their dream, they have their mission, they have their business plan to sell and to pitch the people with excessive capital. So I think it, it was such a beautiful thing when there is a square, people go there to sell their dreams, and then get the capital, sail to the uncharted island to get the goodies and then sell it back to people. It's such a beautiful human history. So in this year, I, I want to like, if I do do a magazine about business and finance, the origin of business finance, I think that's the year. And we want to honor and show our deep appreciation to those people back in time. It's a good choice. It's a good choice indeed. And, and, and one thing that I did notice uh, not only in Taiwan, but in other places, that there are more and more young people interested in finance, in, in investing, in stocks. But, but sometimes maybe you're right. Maybe the legacy media, maybe they're too traditional, conservative. Maybe they're not so open for this kind of young generation. Do you want to talk to this new generation with your magazine? When you, when you think about the type of people that will buy this magazine, is that kind of a an area that interests you, this kind of younger generation? What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's actually a very good question because that's the most important question when we launch the magazine or decided to kind of turn it into public because like we all know uh, running a print media or even doing a media startup is extremely risky and not profitable maybe and it's not an easy like uh, uh if, if we use the same 
same skill set to maybe sell bubble tea or sell something more profitable, we could actually make more money than doing print media. But I think uh, we found a business model that we target. We, we started with the question of who do we want to serve with our print media and our content? We design it like any products. Uh, we start from who do we want to talk to? Uh, what kind of story we want to tell them? Is our story worth reading like by our targeted readers? So we kind of started with research of how big of the potential uh, readership in Taiwan, for example. So we did a little research. There are about 23 million in, in Taiwan and there are about 19 million people that have financial needs and uh, over 5 million people uh, have active trading account. And uh, there are only very few media outlets that's kind of tell the business and financial story and knowledge with them. And all these existing medias are the traditional and legacy media. And so we find a better way to tell the story and share knowledge to these people. So uh, we kind of started at a top-down research of doing this business to kind of minimize the risk of uh, you know, running just two years of print media and then we, we, we have to raise the fund or we have to uh, sell our shares or we, we have to do, uh, you know, we, we, we go bankrupt, but we want to focus. If we target the right market, it will sell. And if we produce a high quality journalism, it will sell. So that's, uh, let's see how it goes. And just give us the details. So it's, it's out mid-January. And of course, you'll be sold in Taiwan, but you mentioned perhaps in some places in Hong Kong as well. Yeah, because uh, now we have agreed to, uh, like the, the magazine will be out on the bookshelves of Athlete, and which is uh, one of the best bookstore brands in Asia. And they have uh, retail channels uh, also in, in some cities in China and also in Hong Kong. And uh, perhaps if we work, well with them and if sold well in in taiwan and i believe they might say oh the chief like the editor-in-chief of this magazine is from hong kong as well we sell the 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 good product back in the hong kong bookshelf and uh, so if we do well uh maybe work with jitaya like jitaya bookstore also has amazing network in japan and there's a like the, a huge interest of Taiwanese culture and also Hong Kongese culture in Japan right now. So they might also consider selling this if, if we do well. You are with The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. And now, as tensions between Russia and Ukraine tighten, Andrew Muller reflects on their fickle friendship and speculates on what it is that President Putin really wants from the situation. A few bold facts should be established at the top, lest they become occluded by the fog of war, or at least as we go to air, the fog of possible imminent and or threatened war. The big one is that Ukraine is an independent sovereign state, officially recognised as such by everyone, including, it is important to remember, Russia, which opened an embassy in Kiev in 1992, around a year after Ukraine became independent following the demise of the Soviet Union. This morning, the New York Times reporting, quote, the week before intensive diplomatic meetings began, American and Ukrainian officials watched from afar as Russia began 
emptying out its embassy in Kiev. In 1997, Russia signed the Russian-Ukrainian Friendship Treaty, which, among other provisions, recognized Ukraine's territorial integrity and the inviolability of its borders. <coughs> that treaty was allowed to lapse in 2019, Ukraine having decided, all things considered, that there wasn't much point in renewing it. The Russian Federation definitely neglected the basic provisions of the treaty, violating the territorial integrity of Ukraine, committing armed aggression, carrying out military and economic pressure, and interfering in the internal affairs of the country. As an independent sovereign state, Ukraine, like every other independent sovereign state, is entitled to aspire to and apply for membership of whichever international alliances and or unions it pleases. Ukraine's tentative preparations for joining the EU and its hopes of joining NATO, both enshrined in Ukraine's constitution, are therefore entirely a matter for Ukraine and its prospective partners and none of anyone else's business. Russia, you will have read, begs to differ. And begs to differ to the extent that it is, at the very least, allowing the spectre of a major land war in Europe to haunt us afresh. Russia believes, or claims to believe, that NATO is stealthily undertaking an aggressive encroachment upon its western frontier. NATO is uh, no friend of Russia. They decided that they don't want to be... Uh, friendly, they decided they don't want to have the founding act between NATO and Russia to be the basis of our relations. They called Russia and now China, uh, and actually Russia and China together, the threat to NATO. Uh, NATO is looking for the meaning of its future existence. In recent weeks, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has accused NATO of being a geopolitical project aimed at, as he put it, taking over territories orphaned by the collapse of the Warsaw Treaty Organization and the Soviet Union. The verb preferred by the Soviet Union's former constituents at the time and since was not orphaned, but liberated. Lavrov's deputy, Sergei Ryabkov, has made several thunderous warnings against what he described as further NATO expansion. So, does Russia have a case? The short answer is no, at which I'll refer you back to the bit about Ukraine being an independent sovereign state which can do what it likes, and observe that NATO is accepting applications for membership, not conquering territories at gunpoint. And even if it was, Russia, given its recent activities in Ukraine and Georgia, wouldn't have much of a leg to stand on there. The longer answer is the one about Russia's historical paranoia about threats from its west and its notions of grandeur rooted in nostalgia for the Soviet Empire. And these can also be pretty briskly dispensed with. Because, with all due respect to Russia's arduous history and the indisputably heroic sacrifices made in its defence, no sane person imagines that France or Germany harbours the vaguest desire to take another pop at it. 
Russia's present position in this respect is no more or less ridiculous than, say, the United States attempting to dictate terms to Canada for fear of some rerun of the War of 1812. Nor does anybody in possession of all their marbles much miss the Soviet Union, least of all, of course, in Ukraine, where Stalin starved millions of people to death in the 1930s. I could buy for my salary two loaves of bread a month. So that's only how we could survive. But the peasants were dying. Which leaves us with the always diverting question of why Russia is doing whatever it is Russia thinks it is doing. Russia may just be conducting, again, the kind of belligerent and tedious mischief which has become the hallmark of its weirdly adolescent diplomacy. It is possible to see Russia's present behaviour as exactly what it was rolling the pitch for when it first invaded Ukraine in 2014. Ignite a conflict, return it to a low simmer, and turn it back up as and when it amuses and or whenever it is felt that Moscow is being paid insufficient attention. If what Russia actually wants is to keep Ukraine out of NATO and the EU, mission accomplished. Neither organisation, whatever their official utterances, wants to buy that kind of trouble. Seen like this, it's difficult to perceive what Russia would really gain by invading even more of Ukraine, and easy to see what Russia could lose. Lives, money, such global standing as it still possesses, to say nothing of the ironic likelihood of encouraging Finland and Sweden into NATO. But it's also depressingly plausible that the Kremlin is thinking on a loftier plane than that of mere real politic. Last summer, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, unburdened himself of a 7,000-word screed entitled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians, the broad and somewhat menacing gist of which you may glean from the title, and within the text of which you will look long and hard for the mildest expression of interest in what the people of Ukraine think about this. Maybe he does see renaming Kiev as Putingrad as the capstone of a legacy to rival that of Peter the Great. The most optimistic hope is that Russia is trying to wring concessions from the West. A moratorium on Ukraine's accession to the EU and or NATO, recognition of Russia's sovereignty over Crimea, some other imaginary victory in an invented cause, for which Putin might even agree to end the current conflict in eastern Ukraine, therefore claiming kudos as a peacemaker as well. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize to Vladimir Putin. But whatever does happen next, the key thing to keep in mind will be this, that it will be what Russia wanted, when the option of being a collegial and constructive European country and an admired and respected great power was right there all along. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Miller. Now, our about-to-hit-newsstand's February issue looks at the dangerous world of satire, comedy and cartooning, especially the people who tug the tails of the powerful. But as we put the issue together, another topic kept surfacing. Where the hell has the office joke and joker gone? To explore this further, Monaco's Tone Edwards has been larking about with our editorial team. Over to you, Jens. 
I am here indeed with Josh Fenner and Andrew Tuck. And we're talking, uh, gentlemen, a little bit about the soon-to-hit newsstands February issue of Monocle magazine. Um, Andrew, I've wanted to say this about the mag for a while. You're having a laugh with this one, aren't you? It's a total joke, this magazine. <laughs> uh, this is because... Uh, we are looking at the world of cartoonists, satirists and comedians around the world and what they do as a job and why it's become a bit of a dangerous game. So many of these satirists are, even in our magazine, cautious about showing their faces. You know, we have a, one, one gentleman who's chosen to hold a newspaper in front of his face because these people are at risk. They're, they're tweaking the tales of authority, but they're also wading into issues of our time, social issues, religious issues, and it comes with some inherent danger. Now, some of these things are just social concerns. You know, if you're a comedian in the Middle East, it's not that you're going to be saying anything that dangerous, but there's just no, no appetite for saying anything against you know, the ruling family, for example. So it's looking at these people and how they navigate all these things and, and hopefully having one or two smiles along the way. Um, well, Josh, it's funny, isn't it? After the last couple of years, you could argue that it's never been more important or urgent to have a laugh, find some levity. But Andrew's exactly right, isn't it? It's become an increasingly fraught path uh, to, to, to follow. How did you and the rest of the team go about well tracking that tricky course? Because it it's not just a laugh. It, 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 there's potentially some really serious consequences to it. I mean, it's got to tread that line, hasn't it, always? You know, mirth can be as meaningful as anger, but anger seems to be the currency with which people do things often. So unpacking the way that humour works was the idea behind the issue. One of Andrew's many strokes of genius in this issue was to think of a feature in which we asked people who were notoriously unsmiling in their professional capacity, perhaps, to tell us a joke. And I think one of the most telling things about that, you know, if you're asking a second Secretary General or a CEO who's a very responsible person. Um, to tell you a joke, sometimes people don't want to risk it. You get a funny message back from their press person saying, oh, he's too busy. Too he's busy too, to what? He's that, too serious. Yeah, he's too serious as well. But also perhaps, you know, doesn't want to be blindsided. And, you know, what you can say and what you can't say is a real theme that kind of weaves its way through the issue, I think, in a more interesting way, even than we had thought it, it would do. Completely. And, and you know, it's... It's funny, that we, even within the office, <laughs> now our office is quite funny, but we, we have talked about what, where can you tell a joke these days? And um, I've written a, a, a piece in, the, in recent days for the, the, the Monocle Minute, which is about this idea that actually what's happened is that we've all become a bit nervous about telling jokes because we think we're going to offend somebody and lose our jobs. What's strange is that while people will, will literally not tell you a knock-knock joke, what they will do is they will quote verbatim the most foul-mouthed, Tirade from, say, Ricky Gervais, and somehow that that's fine. They can use the c word and whatever they they like because they're quoting somebody else. So this outsourcing of humour, and why that's a bit dangerous. You know, it's if you're you know if you are a politician, it's it's good if you can make your opponent smile every now and then. If you're in a, a business meeting, things are grim. Sometimes someone cracks a joke and it, and it changes the mood. So I think we underestimate the power and value of humour if we just kind of say, OK, it's not something I can get involved in. Well, we'll gauge the power of jokes because I will get you both to maybe volunteer a one-liner or a shaggy dog story in a moment. But just quickly on, on uh, Josh, I guess, what's the sort of monocle stance? Because we're not afraid to be a little provocative. What do we talk about? Quiet provocations, this sort of thing. But, you know, are we there to antagonise? I don't think so, but that has a role as well, isn't it? How, what's the sort of house position on how 
you use humour when you should push people a little bit, maybe make people a bit uncomfortable. Even it's not maybe what our readers. This is a joke question. You've just answered it. No, 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 but what? What? How do you? How do you strike the balance? Because you want to want a bit of edge, but you don't want to make people uncomfortable. I think people people come to the magazine for our perspective, and in offering a perspective that is global, that is informed, um, you do have to cut through things in a certain way. And you know there are complicated issues that are sometimes easier to understand if you can approach them with a little bit of humour, not take everything so utterly seriously. It's not about knocking people's noses out of joint at all, but it is about, I think, acknowledging that humour is free, that it's persuasive, and that it can be political as well as ridiculous and funny and and, and a bit of a carry-on. And, you know, it's not just saying what these um, comedians do and, you know, repeating in print the jokes that they make. It's about explaining who they are and how they fit into these complex systems as well. So I think you leave the magazine hopefully with having seen some mirth and some humour and some fun, but also understanding the people who, who make a whole career out of that and who make a career out of, you know, taking a stance sometimes and just delivering a one-liner at others. Maybe taking some risks as well. Let's have a little. Let's have a sort of Rowan and Martin's laugh in. Andrew, do you have a favourite joke that someone submitted, or one of your own, perhaps? A little zinger. You tell them around the office. I won't repeat them now, of course. But no, but I will tell you a true story. Uh, I went to a zoo the other day, and it only had one animal, a dog, in there. It was a Shih Tzu. <laughs> Josh Fennett, follow oh, that if no, you dare. You're, you're looking at me. They say it's all about the delivery. Uh, this is, you know, this is this is just a question really for both of you. What's a foot long and slippery? <laughs> Careful how you answer. <laughs> Careful. I don't know. A slipper. Oh, oh, yeah, the groan. The groan of acceptance. No, the groan is good on on jokes like that. Do you want to hear my one? Yeah. Uh, why did the Roman emperor's wife hate playing hide and seek? I don't know. Because wherever she hid, Julius Caesar. Oh, hi all. <laughs> No? Yeah, I very love good. These, very, good. very good. Uh, so that's going to be the new one-liner show coming soon to Monocle 24, hosted by Andrew Tuck. No, I joke, of course, it's the imminent issue of Monocle magazine. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best shows here on Monocle 24. Thank you for listening.